So, Ramez, a few days ago, I got these little pills in the mail and written in big, bold font was this one word, Nexus. <laughs> <laughs> what is going to happen if I take them? Oh, man, you're going to have uh, uh, quite a trip, especially if you take them with a friend. Uh, <laughs> Shale, you want to take these together? <laughs> um, like, take an unknown pill with Stephen Lacey? What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. What could go wrong? So the next big thing in podcasting then is transhumanistic interviews, mind-to-mind communication, no equipment needed. Neurocasting. (laughs) (laughs) We promise to tell you what in the world we are talking about. Coming up, futurist, energy expert, and science fiction writer Ramez Nam tries to convince us that tech trends are pushing us toward a future we can feel positive about. First, a word about the supporters of this show. You know, before we can call up our autonomous electric cars using just our thoughts, we're still going to need to manage our electric vehicles with conventional human intervention. And that's where PG&E can help. Did you know that 20% of EV drivers in the U.S. are in PG&E's service territory in Northern California? Well, turns out the future is now. But the electric revolution can't happen with single drivers alone. So PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. Get in touch with PG&E's EV specialists to find out how you can take your transportation fleets electric. Find out more at pge.com gtm. Support for The Interchange also comes from Wonder Capital. By now, you probably know that Wonder can finance your commercial or community solar projects, and you know they can do it at lightning speeds. But did you know they now have lower rates and they can finance all kinds of projects? Head on over to wondercapital.com gtm today to experience the wonder difference. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I am Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. This week, a futurist's take on the positive tech forces upending energy. I am joined by my co-host, Shale Khan, the managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shale. Hello, Stephen. What is the uh, furthest out into the future you're willing to predict, Shale? <laughs> I, um, I'm fortunately no longer mostly in the long-term prediction game, but I, I feel like I have uh, pretty good visibility like five years out, but I also like making predictions much, much longer out because there's just no chance I'm going to get called on them. So if you'll remember, for example, when we did the bug bets earlier this year, um, one of those predictions was 200, 300 years out. That's right. That's a pretty far one. That is, uh, that's, that's crazy futurism. I definitely don't make predictions. I don't know what the opposite of a futurist is. Maybe a clean energy classicist? (laughs) (laughs) So when you look out into the future, Shale, do you see gloom or glimmers of hope? Just like in, in the world, you mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, we focus on energy and climate here, so maybe we can specifically talk about that. But like uh, when you factor in consumer tech trends and connectivity. It's all wrapped together now. And that's part of the conversation today. Uh, do, do you feel like we're headed in the right direction? I actually think I sometimes get asked questions about this um, from folks who are outside the sector. I think I have some cognitive dissonance about it, actually, wherein day to day, I'm very optimistic. I see all sorts of exciting things happening. The technology is moving really fast. There's new business models being developed. Uh, You know, I I see a ton of progress. That's my sort of day-to-day feeling. Um, But in the back of my head at all times, I also recognize that from a climate change perspective, you know, it it doesn't look so good. Like the global picture is pretty bad. And I'm trying to kind of constantly hold both of those things in my head all the time. Yeah. I waver constantly and drastically between feeling upbeat and feeling this deep sense of anxiety. I mean, there's there's no doubt that technology has drastically accelerated our collective living standards faster than ever before. And humanity has the capability to use our tech for an abundance of good. But we're also capable of using tech to destroy ourselves. And it could just be an accident of history that we haven't done that already. And Right now, we're collectively walking toward a climate calamity, this slow motion crisis that requires quick and decisive choices about how we want to deploy technology in the right way. And that's why we've invited Ramez Nam on the show. Ramez is a computer scientist who worked at Microsoft developing products like Outlook and Internet Explorer. He is an award-winning science fiction author. And for those who didn't understand what we were talking about at the top of the show, his Nexus trilogy of books deals with a drug 
that allows for brain-to-brain communication. Ramez is Chair of Energy and Environmental Systems at Singularity University. And in recent years, he's turned his attention to the forces accelerating clean energy technologies. He's trying to spread the gospel of energy disruption to the wider world, making the case that we should feel optimistic about those forces. So that's what we're tackling. Ramez, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Shale. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we've been wanting to do this for a long time, so so good to hear your voice. You've made a name for yourself espousing exponential technology trends. What drew you to focus on energy technologies and applying the same trends that we saw in consumer tech to energy and climate solutions? You know, I've been in tech my whole life and in software primarily, and and I really, while I love the outdoors and so on, I didn't give much thought to it until one day in about 2007, I just... uh, made a resolution for myself that I should really look into this, what's the state of the environment, and what's my responsibility as an individual, and do we have what it takes? Can we actually uh, turn the corner? And what that led me to, and a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of you know reading scientific papers and so on, was the conclusion that the problems are really grave, but that our ability to innovate is also pretty tremendous. Uh, and really that the core, the most pressing environmental issue is climate change and sort of a global system. And the core of addressing climate change is innovating in clean energy. You wrote this piece recently on the four phases of the clean energy disruption. And Shale, I want to get your thoughts on this piece as well. So you argue that we're currently in phase three of the disruptive uh, cycles. What what are these different phases and what does phase three actually mean right now? Yeah, so we're really, we're just about to start phase three, I would say. So phase one, and this is the, the period that most people uh, who criticize renewables uh, to focus on, is from, you know, whenever renewables started, let's say 1980 until maybe 2015, there was almost no place on earth where clean energy was cheaper without subsidies than building a fossil fuel plant, right? And so this was the entirely policy-dependent, subsidy-dependent period of uh, clean energy. And Europe, especially, you know, Germany, but also Spain, Italy, spent tens of billions of euros, a couple hundred billion euros, spreading solar and wind uh, in their in their own nations. And at the end of that, you could say, hey, solar was only 1% of global electricity, wind was maybe 4%. What did Europe get for this couple hundred billion euros? And there's a lot of critics who say this is a terrible idea. But the big impact was that they drove down the cost of electricity from solar and wind by a factor of 10. And so that's why around 2015, we entered the second phase, where in places with good wind, good solar, it was actually starting to become cheaper to build a new solar or wind farm than it was to build a new coal or natural gas plant. Not everywhere around the world, but in the sunniest parts for solar and the windiest parts for wind. And that was sort of, you know, relatively unlooked for. I actually wrote about that in 2011, and 2015 was the date that I picked. I was actually super naive, but for a variety of reasons, uh, the math worked out anyway. But then the much more disruptive moment is... You know, it took a 10x drop, let's say, to go from the beginning of phase one to the beginning of phase two. If the price of solar and wind drops by another half or another factor of three, which is less than that 10x drop, it becomes cheaper to build new solar or wind than it is to keep existing fossil fuel plants, especially coal plants in the U.S., but natural gas in some parts of the world, too. It gets cheaper to build a new solar or wind plant than to keep existing fossil fuel plants running. And we're just, we're not really there yet, but we're just seeing the first hints of it. Next Era CEO, Jim Robo, said about a year ago that by the early 2020s, it'd be cheaper to build new solar wind than keep their coal fleet running. Uh, this utility in Indiana in October, NIPSCO, announced that the cheapest thing for them was to go from being 65% coal-powered uh, right now to 15% coal powered by 2023 and replace all of that coal with solar and wind. And now we have forecasts from Carbon Tracker, from even from McKinsey, that say basically almost everywhere on Earth before 2030, it'll be cheaper to build new solar or wind than to keep coal plants or gas plants running. So that's the third phase. Shale, what do you think about how he outlined those phases historically and, and what that means for this moment in time? 
actually broadly agree. Um, I think it's a heuristic in terms of thinking about the global progression of renewable energy. I think that I think that's about right. I would add maybe a couple of nuances to it that I think are interesting. For example, in that second phase, you know, the period from 2015 to say today or the next few years, the phase when it was just, we were just cresting over the point where in certain cases, you could be a utility somewhere, you could put on an open source RFP for any technology and the cheapest bid that you would get back would be a wind or solar bid. Um, that was true. And as Ramez, you mentioned, primarily true in the sunniest places. So you started to see these really cheap bids for solar in Saudi Arabia and in Mexico and places like that. Um, wind and, you know, especially uh, really windy areas and sort of north central United States and northern Europe. Um, but especially in the case of solar, despite the fact that that was starting to happen, that is not where the majority of wind and solar were being built and are being built during that time. So I do think it's important to note that the market for renewables is still today and has been throughout this whole second phase, really highly concentrated in a small number of markets. And those markets are still subsidized in one form or another. The United States being an obvious example, we still have the investment tax credit and the production tax credit here, in addition to some state level renewable energy mandates and other things. China being the other big example, which has a variety of um, both explicit and implicit subsidies for, for wind and solar. And so you know, I think what has been important in order to maintain momentum and the benefits of scale throughout phase two has been the continued existence of the subsidies that are so much so maligned from phase one, but perhaps at a lower level. And I agree with that. I, I'm not making the case that we should end subsidies because uh, you can look and say coal and gas, especially coal, is getting a huge implicit subsidy in not having to pay for the the health benefits of air pollution or the health harms of air pollution and the, the climate. Uh, and I'm not even saying that the disruption that solar and wind and storage and EVs will bring is going to happen fast enough. I am saying that at this point, if these trends continue, it looks like economics plus the current policies we have around the world are going to disrupt at least the large majority of fossil fuel electricity and of fossil fuel ground transport. Again, I think we need to go faster than that, but this gives me a tremendous amount of hope. In this phase three stage that you say we're entering now, where it's starting to become in certain places cheaper to build new renewable generation than to operate, continue to operate existing thermal generation, is the is the outcome of that that you think is most likely to happen that we're just going to see a wave of early retirements of existing plants around the globe? I mean, will economics win out if that's that's what you think is going to happen? I think economics will win out, but there will be nuances around this. There will be some places where people entrench policy to protect the existing incumbent players and the existing fossil fuel um industry. For instance, in Mexico, we had amazing energy reform a few years ago, and now the new administration is saying there's going to be no more solar auctions, right? So policy can still block uh, clean energy. And then you'll see a variety of other things. Will these coal plant operators, let's say, will they just go out of business and will that be a loss for their lenders? Or are they going to ask for a bailout from the government as part of a deal that gets signed? Uh, so I, I think that politics will will intervene in various ways but fundamentally when the economics are on one side i think the economics start to impact politics as well and you will see a whole lot of early retirements so the other factor here though though i'm a proponent of sort of the heuristic of what is cheaper on a levelized cost basis a you know one plant or another plant renewable plant or a thermal plant wind plant or solar plant i think it's useful as a first order thing but um there is an argument that, that a bunch of folks have made and I think is is warranted to some degree that especially as we get into this third phase, that that's an insufficient way to think about it. And specifically, um, though it may be true that on a pure dollars per kilowatt hour basis, wind or solar may be the, the cheapest resource um, and cheaper perhaps than even operating some existing thermal plants. You you don't just need kilowatt hours. Um, you need kilowatt hours matched to the the timing of load, accounting for whatever flexibility of load that we have. And so folks are starting to argue that look, this is the wrong way to think about it. Um, 
and it doesn't actually reflect the true economics. The true economics are, are based on value to the grid at any given time of any given resource. And on that basis, at least in some cases, it's a harder mountain to climb for wind and solar because for all the reasons that we've talked about many times before on this podcast, you you build a bunch of it and the value of the next incremental amount of it starts to decline because it's all generating at the same time. So how do you think about that nuance? How how much do you think that changes this sort of the what's going to happen as a result of phase three? Yeah, I think that nuance is, is absolutely correct. I mean, I think that intermittency becomes an issue. And, you know, as, as you've talked about, you have too much generation of solar wind at certain hours. It, it drives down the wholesale price of those hours. I think, you know, we'll see a couple things happen. One is I think energy storage technologies are headed in the same direction. They're following the same path as solar, more or less, uh, more or less on that same price decline curve. So I think for getting to multi-hour storage for dealing with the evening peak, uh, smoothing out sort of on the daily, you know, hours today level, I think that's going to get down to a few cents per kilowatt hour, per kilowatt hour round trip to those batteries uh, over the next decade or, or 15 years or so, maybe even faster than that. And I think that's going to smooth out a lot of the, the daily issues. There's still some real challenges uh, when you think about uh, seasonal storage. We think about uh, in Europe, especially, which is much more wind dominated than the U.S. or maybe to some extent in China as well, where you have uh, a winter energy demand peak, and wind is the best resource really in in northern Europe, especially, and you have a week at a time, maybe two weeks at a time, where across Europe the winds are low. So we have to solve that issue. What I'd say is when I do the math, when I look at the modeling studies uh, people have done, Ken Caldera's group had a, a great paper out recently, I think we can get to 70-80% of electricity from wind and solar and sort of multi-hour storage across a continent-sized grid, and, and then building transmission of that size becomes also a political issue. So that that's what I see. I'm not sure that we have what it takes to get to 100% uh, wind and solar, but you add in hydro, I'd say, I'd make an argument that we should keep all the nuclear reactors we have running as long as we possibly can. Uh, and, you know, I talk to startups, and I know you do too, Shale, and I see a, a dozen different startups looking at the seasonal storage problem. I see people looking at power to gas or power to hydrogen, and it starts to look viable. So for me, I say that that first 70-80% looks like that's the path we're on, and then we have challenges to solve for the, the last 20 or 30%, uh, but I suspect we're underestimating our innovative powers for that as well. So I want to take that and then talk about why that makes you feel optimistic. First, I want to unpack another concept that you talk a lot about, uh, exponential energy. And the implication in exponential energy is that there are a lot of learnings from consumer tech adoption that we're seeing in the energy business, in the way that technology is adopted, in the way that we see learning curves drive down the cost and the ultimate end price of technologies. And there's no doubt that in solar and batteries particularly, and, and, and in wind as well, we've seen learning curves uh, in manufacturing and deployment that match consumer tech. Uh, and when we look at you know the, the cost of data dropping, we look at the cost of semiconductors dropping. But when you look at the deployment of these technologies, it's still not exponential. And it's that's because the energy business is just so different from the way we sell mobile phones, for example. What are the learnings from technology adoption in energy that you apply to exponential energy? And what are the limitations of that? Yeah. So I'd say for me, you know, growth of energy, deployment of clean energy has been so policy dependent that even though I'd say it is exponential in solar so far, uh, roughly over the last 20 years, a 40% annual growth rate, though it's slowed, it's 30% the last five years, uh, that that's a trailing indicator and the leading indicator is cost. And so having cut my teeth in software, you know, we talked about Moore's law all the time, that the amount of computing you can buy for a dollar or bandwidth or storage 
uh, doubles every 18 months. Every decade, you get 100 times more computing uh, per dollar, or the cost of computing drops by a factor of 100. And that's why we've all got supercomputers uh, in our pockets, right, that have m you know, more power in your pocket than it took to get a man to the moon. Now, it's not as fast in clean energy. In solar, if you look at the cost of electricity from solar, over the last 10 years, it's dropped by about a factor of 10, which is actually pretty amazing, uh, but it's not as fast as the factor of 100 that we get in, um, in consumer tech, uh, but it's really, really fast. You know, a decade ago, looking at got Lazard's numbers here, it was maybe 40 cents per kilowatt hour for solar in 2009. And in 2018, they say the average LCOE around the world is maybe 4 cents, something like that. And maybe that's slightly low, but uh, something on that order. And a factor of 10 cost reduction in nine years is staggering in any other industry. It doesn't happen in cars, doesn't happen in buildings. And so... To me, that's the leading indicator. And when it's low enough, the market drives it forward. So if if we had, you know, let's say the, the OPEX of a coal plant around the world is two to four cents a kilowatt hour. If you've got solar coming in at two cents and your coal plant for to build new solar and your coal plant costs four cents to operate, eventually those economics are going to win out and that coal plant is going to get shut down. Uh, and so that's the way that I think about it. The other learning from consumer tech is, you know, B2C is a very different model, but what we see is these S-curves, which is that for a long time, the new technology exists, but it's just not getting out there. And then suddenly it takes off and it shoots up in penetration really, really quickly. And then it hits, you know, some sort of limitation of how many customers care about it or whatnot, or sort of the intermittency issue that we were talking about earlier. And then it slows down again. So my way of thinking is we really haven't even started on the upswing of that S-curve. We'll really start there, or maybe we just barely started when we hit the beginning of phase two. Uh, but when we get to the beginning of phase three, that's when it really starts. And when capital flows into this industry in a much bigger way than it has thus far and drives the, the penetration up until we start to hit some of those limitations of uh, the value decline and the inter intermittency problems and so on. This is an area where I, I have a hard time drawing too many parallels. I can see the case why cost should be a leading indicator here and you know you can make you can make a strong case that the pace of adoption of renewables on a global basis will increase over the next decade or so. Um, but I don't see how it mirrors anything like consumer tech. It's just, it's a completely different sector. In the case of consumer tech, I mean, with the exception maybe of say rooftop solar or, or you know, residential batteries or something, which is consumer tech. Um, for the most part, we have central decision-making and planning um, coming from utilities or grid operators. We have complicated market structures, wholesale markets. Uh, we have, you know, layers and layers of regulatory issues. You have long time horizon planning that impacts things. A lot of that, for example, you know, utilities in the U.S. are starting to put a ton of renewables in their IRPs, but it's also worth noting that those IRPs go out to 2030 or 2035. It affects the time frame under which this stuff can happen. And even if it suddenly becomes cheaper to have a new solar project on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis than an operating coal project, you know, just the way that the system works, um, not to mention all the political stuff that you discussed before, just makes it a it slow process of change if it ever happens. So to me, I'm with you that the the curve starts to bend upward. I don't see how it looks anything like consumer tech. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, consumer sales cycles are just much shorter and much simpler. It probably looks more like enterprise tech. But I'm not saying that by the end of 2030, we're 100% renewables or anything like that. I think it's still a multi-decade transition. Um, and I don't even have a good sense of how to model what happens when we're in that that phase three, uh, because there are other bottlenecks in the system. How quickly can you build factories for solar panels or or wind turbine hubs and wind blades? How quickly can you train up uh, crews to deploy them? How you know what's the IRP uh, cycle like for these utilities? How much does politics slow you down, or when does it start to speed you up? So I don't know how quickly that transition will happen, but 
it, it's not a decade, it's, it's two or three decades, most likely. Coming up, the optimistic and pessimistic scenarios for the energy transition. First, a quick word about our supporters who are working hard to usher in the optimistic scenario. We're brought to you by PG&E. Now is the time to begin electrifying your fleet of vehicles. And if you're in PG&E service territory, you can take advantage of limited time incentives. Get educated, gain access, and make the smart choice to take your fleet electric. And once you make the choice, don't go it alone. PG&E is right there to help. They provide substantial financial, logistical, and construction support for all the electrical infrastructure needed to charge a customer's fleet. Get in touch with one of their EV specialists and learn more at pge.com slash gtm. We're also brought to you by Wonder Capital. We've been telling you for a while now that Wonder can finance your commercial solar projects, but what does that actually mean? Well, they can finance community solar projects with 100% residential offtake in upstate New York. They can finance projects in Hawaii with a storage component. They can finance projects in Massachusetts through the new SMART program. They can finance projects through California CCAs. Let's be honest, there's no such thing as a vanilla commercial-scale solar project. So let Wonder help you with all these different kinds. Head on over to wondercapital.com gtm to work with folks who will understand your unique project for what it truly is, financeable. So given all the tech trends that we've outlined thus far, what is the optimistic case for these accelerating in the future and our ability to do something about climate change? I think the optimistic case for me is that we hit tipping points at some point, really in the next decade, between now and 2030, where the economics take over and we start to very rapidly decarbonize both electricity and ground transport. And hopefully in parallel, we get a handle on uh, decarbonizing heat and industry and, and some stuff around ag and deforestation. Now, I I don't think that puts us on a path for being under two degrees Celsius right now, I'll be honest. But I also think our ability to adapt to a two degrees Celsius or 2.5 degrees Celsius world is actually much larger than people give us credit for. So it's it's not a scenario where everything's hunky-dory. I think a lot of things get worse before they get better on climate. I think uh, there's a lot of ecosystems like coral reefs that are in severe, severe danger. And yet I think we have the ability, both through clean energy technology and resilience, uh, to turn the corner and have people living, the median person on Earth, having a much better life in 2050 and 2100 than they do today. And what's the pessimistic scenario? So the pessimistic scenario, the simple pessimistic scenario is uh, we either, I'm not so worried about electricity and, and transport anymore, but I think they will happen later than we'd like, uh, that maybe we don't get a handle on industry. Maybe we don't get a handle on deforestation uh, and things go out longer. Uh, pessimism number two is ripple effects uh, on civilizations, especially least developed countries that have a lot of local environmental stress that's not directly climate related, that gets worse uh, with climate change and destabilization, civil wars, U.S. force deployments that cause more chaos in the world. And then number three, the scariest thing, but low probability but scary, is some of the... Um, you know, positive feedback loops, and positive being very negative here, some of the, the self-reinforcing things in the climate system where we have a very poor ability to model them, uh, but that if we kick some of them off, could accelerate warming uh, much more rapidly than we think. That's the scariest thing. Shale, where do you stand in the optimistic, pessimistic camp when it comes to sectoral change? Um. I think I'm a little less optimistic than it sounds like you are, Ramez, but not so far from it. I guess my biggest concern is something that maybe reflects on my own personal concern, which is I, along with I think most folks who've been spending a lot of time on energy and climate change, have dedicated a good chunk of the last decade or two to thinking about these issues that I guess you're framing as the ones that we we have closest to solve, electricity, and then sort of behind that transportation. Um, and I, and I, you know, even if we, we think we have sort of got the tools in place to solve those ones, I also have not spent as much time 
thinking about the next set industry, agriculture, deforestation. Um, and I don't think I'm alone in that. And I guess my biggest concern is if I'm still not spending enough time probably thinking about those things. Um, and I have no idea how hard truly those are going to be to decarbonize. I mean, it, it seems like the, the, common wisdom is they are harder to decarbonize. That's part of why they're further down the list. Um, but I guess what, what I don't feel like I have a handle on is, are they completely intractable problems? Are they problems where we have line of sight to solutions? Do they require massive mobilization policy? Um, do they not? And because of that, I feel a little bit uneasy about sort of having a sanguine view about how we're going to do overall. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and those issues scare me too. And they're the ones that I think uh, we need to start really focusing on. In fact, in my wish list for policy, as we have the Green New Deal uh, discussion and so on, there's certainly things in electricity and ground transport I would want, but I think there's higher leverage to start enacting policy to really push on the industry piece, which is, you know, more than 20% of global emissions and that we've done very little on, um, to really push more on, you know, ag and deforestation is a quarter of global emissions. Uh, and I think that there's there's things we can do there and so that's where I would really double down right now, do the early policy that starts to make those things, you know, move through their phase one, ideally, so that we have a chance of starting to deploy them a decade from now. I want to turn now to some listener questions. When we booked you for the show, we put out the call to see what people would want us to talk about. And we got some great tech-oriented questions. So let's just walk through some of them and see where they take us. Olivia Gamboa asks about batteries, and she says, what are the less obvious second and third order effects of cheaper and better batteries? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting, Ashley. I think um, batteries, so we talk about sort of distributed versus centralized in clean energy, right? And most people, I think, who really look at this figure that centralized solar utility scale or community solar even is probably higher value most of the time than distributed, than rooftop. Uh, but batteries, I think, will be fairly different. Uh, and you see that in the U.S. now. Half the battery deployments are behind the meter. So I, I think batteries, uh, the reason they're more valuable in a distributed manner is they uh, reduce the cost of building out more grid. You still have some, have some grid, but you know the distribution lines to your house are full in the late afternoon, uh, but they're empty in the middle of the night. So you start to have more ability to deploy batteries instead of more grid resources. You get more resilience against blackouts. And fundamentally, they give uh, building owners, homeowners, commercial buildings, more leverage against the utilities. Uh, because if right now, you know, solar depends upon net metering uh, and utilities, you know, have mixed feelings about this and sometimes they try to stop it. But when a battery in your building or in your home is cheap enough, then the consumer can say, oh, I'm just going to fill up the battery. I don't need to sell it back to the grid. And I think that is that's a, a profound sort of switch in the, the bargaining power of utilities versus consumers. It's also very, very scary for utilities. It's going to force a change in the utility business model uh, around the world, really. And I'm not sure we know what the new model will be. I would add a couple of, I, I don't know whether they're second order effects or just things that we often don't think about um, when we talk about batteries. The first one is one that we, I guess, have talked about occasionally, but you know, the, all of the attention and focus that's going to be placed on increasing battery density over the next decade or so will be necessary for the possibility of electric flight. Um, and electrifying, you know, air transportation is a, is a huge intractable problem that you can't, you can't solve without much more energy dense batteries. So the fact that we are spending so much time trying to make more energy dense batteries for electric vehicles and for stationary grid applications will have potentially a knock on effect of enabling electric flight. Um, the second that is related to that is the uh, attention being paid to increasing battery density actually often starts with consumer tech and then falls back into electric vehicles and stationary storage because you care much, much more about how dense your lithium ion battery is in your cell phone than you do how dense your lithium ion is in your car than you do your lithium ion battery on the grid. And so there's you know a whole bunch of companies, for example, trying to do drop-in graphite replacements, like one uh, called Sela Nanotechnologies, which is founded by a 
early Tesla employee and a friend of mine that just um, raised a huge round from Daimler and is, I think, one of the first recent clean tech unicorns, billion dollar valuation. There, and and the others in that space, you know, the the earliest applications I think are going to be in consumer tech, followed by electric vehicles. So we're going to get one of the nice things about batteries is that they have these applications cross sector, and so they the the benefits that you get out of improvements for one sector then knock on to to the next one. So next question comes about new technology successes. And Duncan Campbell asks, um, the, the, the recent story in clean tech, you know, the last eight to 10 years has been a development and finance story. People have just gotten way better at putting money into these projects and developing projects in a cheaper, more efficient way. Um, so, so largely we're seeing conventional renewable energy technology deployed because of that. Are we going to see more unique technology successes in the energy transition and what may they be? Yeah, so I think technology fundamentally is global. Like when you build a technology, you can deploy it anywhere. But I do think there are different areas geographically that have different needs. So I'd say, you know, in the U.S., for instance, or across North America, uh, the cheapest thing to do if you want high penetration is to build a grid across the entire nation, basically HVDC transmission uh, and integrate solar and wind in a fairly conventional way. And that's a political battle, uh, but the technology exists. And if we do it, we might not even need seasonal storage. Uh, It's a different story in Europe where you're more wind dependent in the winter. And so there hydrogen might take off or technologies like uh, form energy, sodium sulfur flow batteries or other technologies that can do seasonal or multi-day or multi-week storage might be more important in Europe uh, or in a place like Japan where you don't have a large enough area to really get the the geographic diversity uh, to insulate you against weather and so on. And so Japan, for instance, is is probably the most aggressive nation on the topic of hydrogen and is looking to import hydrogen, maybe from Australia or Chile or or someplace else. Or another one I'd point out is um, floating wind. So I think the future of wind is largely offshore. Uh, the the cost is there. It's you know the cost is a little bit higher than onshore, but the capacity factors are much higher. Uh, But in certain places like Japan or the U.S. West Coast or uh, parts of the areas around the U.K., the continental shelf slopes off too fast. And so monopole, you know, bottom-mounted offshore wind doesn't work. And so I think you'll see floating wind will actually get developed, and I'm pretty bullish on it, uh, but it'll really apply to certain geographies where it makes the most sense. So, Ramez, what do you think about next generation nuclear, specifically different types of small modular nuclear reactors? Any thoughts on when or if that technology will be commercialized? Well, I think you know, new nuclear is largely dead in the U.S. And, and Europe. And so if the technology, and I think that the question was put on Twitter of when's it going to come back into the U.S., if the technology, whether it's just Gen 4 reactors or small modular reactors, you know, either direction, if it's going to come back into the U.S., it's going to happen because China or India or South Korea drove it, deployed it, tremendous amount of it, enough that they could demonstrate that they could build these plants repeatably, build a big enough supply chain, build enough workforce uh, that they could do it at low cost without the sort of average 100% cost overrun uh, that we've seen you know, around the world. And so if there's a path for nuclear coming back into the U.S., it's because you know the Chinese most likely have actually deployed it at scale, demonstrated good cost, and then we can re-import that uh, into the states. But I, you know, I will say, uh, even in China, which is the country most aggressively deploying nuclear, uh, you know, wind power soared past nuclear years ago. Solar looks like it's on a path to go past uh, nuclear, and there's still cost overruns that are happening now. Maybe five, ten years from now, they've repeatedly built the same few reactor designs enough that the cost overruns have stopped. Uh, and if so, then it becomes possible for the rest of the world to benefit from that. So up until now, we've been talking about the positive development of technology, but there are a lot of scholars out there who take a much more pessimistic view. One who I follow 
a guy named Nick Bostrom, who's at the University of Oxford, has written a paper called The Vulnerable World Hypothesis. Um, He's also written a book, a very famous book that was espoused by Elon Musk about general superintelligence and how damaging it could be to the world and to humanity. And his argument basically with The Vulnerable World Hypothesis is that We have just been lucky. It is an accident of history that we have developed technologies that doesn't give someone the power to very easily and cheaply destroy the world. Uh, Obviously, if if you're talking about world-destroying technologies, the closest thing we've gotten to is nuclear, um, uh, the nuclear bomb, and uh, probably the use of fossil fuels over a long period of time causing climate change is something that could fit into the the uh, vulnerable world hypothesis. But essentially his argument is that we've just picked the right technologies and this constant focus on technological progress, technological progress has been this happy accident and that someday we're going to pick the wrong technology and it's going to give the wrong person um, or a group of machines the ability to destroy the world. How how do you think about um, our use of tech in that construct? I'd love to get your reaction to Nick Bostrom's philosophy and then see where that takes us. Yeah, well, if I look at history, I'd say this. Almost every new technology we've ever developed has some negative side effect and some negative use. You know, trains uh, made uh, the Civil War and then World War I much worse than other wars because they allowed you to move huge numbers of troops to the front lines. Uh, aircraft, you know, were used uh, in military conflict. Uh, the automobile, you know, kills a million people a year in accidents and contributes to climate change. Uh, agriculture, you know, at the beginning of the show, I said climate change is the worst environmental problem. Actually, it's not. How we generate food is actually what has done the most environmental damage. And yet, despite that, the world is better off than it ever has been. Right? Poverty is at an all-time low. Longevity is at an all-time high. The fraction of people in a democracy is at or near its, its all-time high. So for some reason, uh, with all of these technologies that can be used in negative ways, people largely pick to use them in ways that enhance their lives. And as we find these uh, negative effects that we didn't expect, like I'd say uh, the ozone hole and ozone depletion, eventually people get together and say, okay, we have to solve this. Because largely, we're not completely brain dead. Um, Nick tends to focus, he writes the most about AI and AI superintelligence and, and a runaway AI. And I, as a science fiction writer, I would just say that's science fiction. Like what we're actually developing, it, it, it has almost no relation what's actually being done in industry to the science fiction con- conception of, of AI. If you look at... Um, uh, Google, DeepMind, and AlphaGo, AlphaGo Zero. It's this incredible Go-playing software. It can beat the very best human. AlphaGo Zero doesn't actually know that the game of Go exists. It doesn't know that there's something called chess. It doesn't know that there's something called a human. It doesn't know that it exists. Uh, it has no concept of anything. It's just a super smart pattern matcher that can tell you, oh, this looks like a good move. This looks like a bad move. And that's what most of our tech is. Uh, And so I just don't see a trajectory towards the sort of thing that Nick's talking about. So you really think that general superintelligence is science fiction? Because I'm on the fence, obviously not being a technologist. I just listen to what a variety of technologists say. And it seems to me like it's much more imminent than what you described, but but, uh, you're not convinced. No, I mean, there's a Polls are not the best way to predict the future, but there's an interesting study that was done sort of informally. They uh, took a bunch of people uh, who've made comments publicly about, uh, you know, generalized AI and superintelligence, and they graphed, um, you know, how worried is this person about uh, superintelligence versus uh, how many years experience actually working in AI does this person have? And it's this, mostly this L-shaped curve where the people that are super worried about uh, runaway AI by and large, haven't actually worked with AI. And the people that have worked with AI and have worked the most, for the most part, are really not very worried about this. Uh, there's just this misconception. I'm not saying that it's impossible. Uh, you know, 
minds, human minds, are a property of, of the organization of our brains. Nothing says that we can't build something that has reasoning power like a human or better than a human or better than a human and much faster than a human, but we're nowhere close. I'll give you a, a one more piece of data on that. If you look at uh, the best AI technologies out there right now, deep learning, and you compare it to a human child, you find that while deep learning systems can actually get much more accurate or more accurate than humans in certain tasks and face recognition and playing chess and playing Go, but they actually learn much, much, much more slowly than a human child does. That if you take uh, Google's you know, AlphaGo Zero and you let it play 100 games of Go and you take you know, a 10-year-old and let the 10-year-old play 100 games of Go, the 10-year-old is going to beat the pants off of the best deep learning system that we have. The only reason these systems are better is in domains where there's a infinite amount of data we can give them, and game playing is a special case because you can just keep playing it against every other piece of software that, that plays Go in itself. So in real-world situations where there's sort of a finite amount of data that you have, uh, there's still stuff in our best AI systems that the brain just does tremendously better. What about bring, bringing it back to energy for a second, because this is actually a related case. I mean, we've spent a lot of time at Energy Impact Partners looking at um, you know, companies that are using things like drone data or satellite data to do stuff like vegetation management for utilities or you know, try to identify problems on the, on the distribution of the transmission grid. Um, one of the, this, and that's sort of the opposite case from the game playing example where there's, there's really limited data that you can use to train a machine learning algorithm. Um, but there are also a bunch of companies out there now that are starting to, this isn't specific to the energy sector, but they're starting to create synthetic data that basically you train your machine learning algorithms on, um, on data that is extrapolated from the little bit of real data that you've got to apply to, to say, okay, well, if I, you know, if I recognize one thing in the real world, let me create a million permutations of it that are synthetic such that I can train a machine learning algorithm on it. So then if you can use synthetic data, does it really matter so much whether the real world isn't a game of AlphaGo or a game of chess? Well, I think that's a great question. It's interesting. And, and those techniques, what I've seen is they're good for robustness. So for instance, uh, somebody has shown that computer vision systems in, in self-driving cars are vulnerable to like small stickers you put over a stop sign and they no longer recognize the stop sign. So these synthetic systems are actually really good for uh, building robustness against noise. I'm not sure they're a lot better for accuracy, but even if they are, I mean, my, my model of the future is that we will have AI systems that are better at recognizing patterns in every narrow sense than humans, but they will be our tools, not our masters. In the same way that, you know, my car goes faster than I can run, uh, Excel can calculate, uh, you know, recalc a spreadsheet far faster than I could ever do. Uh, Word has better spelling uh, than I have most of the time. Uh, those are all prostheses of some sort, some physical, some cognitive, but they have no self-awareness, no volition. They're tools that that amplify our lives. So that's where I see AI coming in. And I do think AI can amplify a lot of things in the energy system and, and in the energy transition. So we've covered machine learning and artificial intelligence pretty well. What about the other tech that could be pretty revolutionary for transactions in energy markets? Uh, blockchain. What is your feeling on the viability of blockchain as an application in either peer-to-peer -peer energy sales or uh, just reforming regionalized energy markets? What's the impact in your, in your eyes? You know, I'm actually a little dubious about blockchain and energy, but the thing that these blockchain startups are trying to do, I think, makes a ton of sense. I just don't think you need blockchain to do it. And the thing that they're trying to do, in, in many cases, is just expose real-time prices in the energy market, because if you can do that, and if you can do that inclusive of not just generation costs and demand, but also the distribution grid and how congested it is, then you can send a lot of smart signals to a lot of uh, energy demand, uh, you know, energy uh, demand sources uh, to do the right thing at the right time. So I think that's amazing. I think just having more information exposed in the market uh, can help batteries charge, can help EVs charge at the right time. We have the most solar and wind available and so on. Um, 
I'm not sure you need blockchain, but I think those startups are morally headed in the right direction. So you're also a science fiction author. You wrote a very popular series of science fiction novels between 2011 and 2015. I'm curious, if you're a science fiction writer and connoisseur, what is the best use of energy in a science fiction book that you've ever read or a science fiction film that you've watched? Mm, that's a good question. You know, I think energy technology uh, tends to just be in the background in science fiction, but there's a lot of science fiction recently that's done a good job with climate. And climate's actually a really hard thing to handle in science fiction because it, it happens so slowly, generally. Uh, but a lot of, you know, my education on uh, tipping points in climate, some of it came from a book by John Barnes called Mother of Storms that talked about a giant methane release from the Arctic. Uh, and you see people like uh, Paolo Bacigalupi with the water knife talking about uh, drought and conflict over water in the U.S. West, or Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, who in many of his books, most recently, I think, uh, New York 2140, talks about really severe climate change occurring, and yet humans uh, persevering and actually adapting uh, or you know, being more resilient and having a better society in the future, uh, even in the face of climate change having occurred. Why do you think energy is so neglected? Oh, well, energy is a magical technology. You know, dilithium crystals or, or your fusion reactors everywhere. Uh, because I think humans, for the most part, don't really care that much about energy. They care about energy services. They care that the lights are on. They care that they can fly from New York to LA, that they can you know, drive to where they want to go, that they get manufactured goods or food that they want. They care about a ton of things that are driven by energy, but energy itself is so behind the scenes for people that it's sort of a little bit out of sight, out of mind. Ramez Nam is a technologist. He's an author. He's chair of energy and environmental systems at Singularity University, a man of many talents. Ramez, thanks so much for joining us. Stephen, it's been a real pleasure. You can find Ramez at just Ramez on Twitter. You'll also find this show there. Thanks to all the listeners who sent their questions to us. If you want to respond or engage with Ramez's answers, send us your reactions to Interchange Show or to him or to me and Shale. Personally, it's hard for me to respond to everyone, but I read and digest everything that people tweet at us. So if, if we don't directly engage, you're still informing the conversation. And that's the end of the show. Maybe someday we'll live in a world where you can just recommend this podcast without your hands, with just your mind. But for now, you'll need to put a little work in and type. So please, if you enjoyed this content, give us a rating and review wherever you access this show and recommend it to the folks in your circle if they'd get something out of it. Thanks for being here. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations about the Future of Energy.